0: Gonna spend the rest of my life telling this story, ain't I? We know the dangers of one person using.
1: All right, I'm good. Here we go. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Meadow. I'm your host, Joseph Carver. The Meadow is where we go to speak about all things innovation in independent schools. This week, I sat down with Sarah Hannawald, the assistant head of school professional development and new programs at One Schoolhouse. Sarah and I talk about her history of supporting independent schools. Her time as the executive director of the Association of Technology Leaders in Independent Schools, Innovation, and what we still have to learn about remote learning. It was a blast catching up with Sarah. I hope you enjoy this episode of The Meadow. I'm super excited to have uh, Sarah Hannawald join us uh, at the Meadow this week. It is not an exaggeration to say that I would not be doing this podcast or uh, be the CIO at the Meadow School if it were not for uh, a fortunate uh, run-in with Sarah Hanniwald in the Bay Area a number of years ago at, I think, was the second hosting of the Atlas Conference. So she can correct me, it might have been the first, um, but she's been an absolute... Uh, Uh, lightning uh, rod for for innovation in independent schools and has been uh, a great mentor for a countless number of technology directors and CIOs and heads of schools around the country. So we're really fortunate to have her here. And so thanks, Sarah. Thanks for coming along.
0: Well, Joseph, thank you so much for having me. And just hearing you say that just warms my heart because that is the one thing that I have always wanted to do is feel like the generation that came behind me, I know I make myself sound like I'm 80 already, but um, the next generation of tech directors to not have to go through some of the, oh, wait, what does that mean that I had to go through as an early career tech director when they were definitely inventing independent school technology while we were buying it?
1: Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think we can dive into that a little bit later on, but I do think that you've been uh, at the epicenter of a number of innovations that have changed literally changed the hiring pool for technology directors in independent schools because you made it possible for someone with a background like I have from the classroom that was not primarily a tech-based background to get all of the tools that are needed to be a successful technology director from the community. And we'll talk more about a few of those things. But before we do, I would like for, for our listeners to get a little bit of a sense about how you came to this position in your life, where you started in independent schools and where you are now sure
0: and you're going to laugh because the the way i became a school an independent school tech director was i was working at an independent school and i was a learning specialist and as independent school contracts a lot of people will laugh when they hear this i had a 93% contract of a full-time employment with the way it was put together but i could pick up the extra 7% if I would keep my eye on the purple IMAX that were all in this other room. <laughs> and I said, sure, because I had been on the literary magazine in college and I knew a little bit about PageMaker and that made me an expert at this point in time. And, um, and then at one point I said, you know, if I take this phone cord and I'm willing to crawl underneath the table and hook all of these up, then the kids can all print without having to carry their disc. Yes, disc across the room to the one that's connected to the printer. And that was the beginning of a career. And I don't know that you could do that anymore because it was so accidental. And it really was, you know, I was young and willing to crawl under the desks. And then I crawled into the ceiling and was hurling wire down to say, hey, you know what? We can actually connect this across the rooms. Um, And I was really fortunate in that my willingness to do this kind of stuff entertained the independent contractor who was doing the <laughs> real side of school technology, which was the, you know, the systems that the administration was using. And he taught me so much and we had such a great relationship and I'm forever grateful. And his name was Ed Painter. If I can slide that in there. I want to sure. give an ode to Ed.
1: So it's, it's funny that you say that, but I mean, you you, and I both know that if you go back a generation of technology directors in independent schools, the stories about how they ended up in those spots are so varied and so uh, fortuitous, You know, just being in the right place at the right time or having a real interest. But the other thing that seems like a recurring theme in those stories is a lot of those independent schools were working with uh, managed services partners to begin with. So they started mm-hmm. with somebody from the outside, um, supporting their schools. And either over time that outside person was hired and became an inside person or someone on the inside ultimately um, took over those roles in, in most instances. And I think it's because schools grew and started to recognize that having someone that was a part of the culture and the actual teaching community was so critically important to the success of using technology in the classroom. Does I mean does that track as sort of the way that it evolved for you?
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the examples that I can Give of that is that, you know, admissions and finances, all of those things use software before teachers and students did. We were still printing out report cards in triplicate carbon that I was running through the dot matrix printer for people. Um, but when we had a change in our admissions office, the director of admissions became someone who had been on the admissions committee, who had been a part of our first one to one rollout, and really understood how the school was starting to think about technology in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And she had the adeptness to learn the software that the office was using super quickly in a way that surprised the other leadership of the school. You know, they didn't know that they could, could get someone with that kind of culture who could also use the systems that well. And I think that was a real opening at that particular school environment for really rethinking about who could take on jobs that were tech heavy.
1: So you moved from being a technology director to school and then and then at some point a small group of you came together and as I understand it sort of birthed this idea of an organization that would be designed to support technology directors in independent schools. Can you talk me through what that was and, and what that became?
0: Yeah, so that started um, well, there was the Listserv, the ISCDL Listserv, which I am still um, a servant of. You know, people say, oh, you're a moderator. I'm like, oh, no, no, nobody reads a message. It goes straight. Everything goes straight through. If you're a subscriber, you can post. And the Listserv moderates itself beautifully. But I, you know, do the care and feeding and make sure that people get help when they need it or, or just make sure if something quirky happens, I take care of that with um, Hoover Chan, who's the other person. Um, moderator. But so the listserv was a place for people to connect. And then we started connecting at conferences and people would say, Hey, you know, let's have an ISCDL meetup. And it was always super informal and always volunteer driven. And I have to give the three founders of Atlas credit for saying, what if we did something a little bit more formal? And they got together and said, Hey, let's start a conference and talk about this idea. And I was employee one. Um, to recruit, can we, can we recruit enough people who wanna make this happen? And I wanna really thank every school who joined that first year, because that first year it was really seed money and I called them angel investors to say, hey, you know what, we wanna provide something that's a little bit more structured, a little bit more formal so that this community has things in place once volunteers, um, volunteers move schools, they change jobs, they have family changes, You know, if there's not a single entity really holding it all together, it doesn't last. And a a good example of that is the Ning. Were you ever in the Ning, the independent school tech director's Ning? It was great until it wasn't. Mm-hmm. You know, it was fantastic. And then some spammers started hitting it and it was taking so much work. And it's just the listserv will not die. The listserv will always be there. I think it's the cockroach. The listserv
1: is the listserv. And I was actually, I was gonna ask about it a little bit later on, but I didn't realize that the the origin story for Atlas was actually rooted in the um, ISEDL, which I didn't know that before, but the ISEDL continues to be, I think, one of the great unheralded resources for technology directors. It's, um, you know, when you talk about how bad the internet has become in many ways, <laughs> you look for these silver linings and the ICDL is really one of those silver linings of, of, a, of a place where you can literally just throw something out um, and everything that comes back to you is quality. Uh, and sometimes you throw things out and you get sort of deafening silence and say, oh, I'm, you know, maybe I, I'm, I'm wrong about this or no one's doing what I'm talking about. But mo- more often you send something out an email to that listserv and say, I'm working on this printing problem at my school and if you just track it over the course of two, three hours, you'll get 20 to 25 responses of people. And invariably, five of them have the exact same situation and already have worked through the problem save you countless hours of troubleshooting. Uh, and it's just this incredible resource. I'm always shocked when I talk to anyone that's involved in technology or in independent schools that aren't members. Um, and, and, and interestingly, one of the episodes we recorded to this podcast um, previously was with the director of arts uh, at the Meadows School, and he's on the ISEDL, and he says it's just a great resource for learning, and so he stays on the show. I don't think it's even just technology folks, but it's um, but it truly is. It's one of those gifts to the community that I think is probably you know raising all boats uh, when it comes to performance in schools is remarkable. So that group got together and they did and They formed this organization which we haven't named yet. It was the Association of Technology Leaders in Independent Schools, and you were employee number yes. one. Yeah, Atlas, yes. employee number one. And um, your, you basically were responsible for taking this um, idea of an organization and then turning it into a reality. Was the organization itself built around the idea of the conference or was the conference um, an outgrowth of building the, the organization?
0: So I think, and I'm going to have to say that I think because I was not a part of the let's have a conference conversations that started first. Mm-hmm. It was three Bay Area or California tech directors who said, let's see if this has any legs. And they put out on the listserv, does anybody want to get together? And let's talk about this. And do we want an organization? And it just flew. I think it yeah. was yeah. awesome timing, forceful personalities, a compelling idea. And there's a sense of fairness too. When you think about associations in the independent school community, tech directors are being left out. The techies, mm. you know, they were supposed to figure out their corner of COSIN or their corner of ISTE, both of which are fabulous organizations. But, you know, if you're really focused on public school districts, then independent schools are somewhere around nine to 10% of all American students are in an independent school. And
1: mm-hmm. you
0: just don't have the, the heft to influence yeah, those that's kinds interesting. Of
1: communities. It's interesting that you say the forceful personalities too, because I, a, am I remembering correctly? Is the, is the San Francisco conference the first Atlas conference or mm-hmm. was that the second? Okay. So that was, that, the, first one. That was the first conference. So that's where I, I went. I attended, I came from Miami and flew to the Bay area to see it. And I very clearly Good remember. See, Yeah. I think <laughs> yeah. I was the furthest away. I think they did something that at the conference where it was like, let's figure out who traveled the furthest. Maybe there was somebody from New York too, but yeah, um, but I remember the, you know, I remember the people that I met at that time, you know, at that conference, Gabe Lucas, Peter, uh, Kelsey, you know, those folks, you're right, that I never really had put it all together. But there really are a ton of charismatic personalities. And it probably had a lot to do with how quickly membership grew, was that those were the sort of faces immediately people were like, oh, these are, the, you know, I want to be a part of this. And it does seem like it just exploded. Um, I've been a huge um, advocate of what was formerly called um, the ECAT-D, which I think has its own new name now. And for, you know, for listeners, you can't see, but Sarah's wearing the ECAT-D shirt from the year that I was in um, the cohort, but it was the early and career, early career aspiring Mm -hmm. technology director cohort, right? Yes. And were you involved in the establishment of that program?
0: Yep. That was my baby. And Mm. I knew, Okay. Confession. I don't know if you'll it out or not. It's a little <laughs> rip off it? of NAIS's aspiring heads, right? If you were an mm-hmm. aspiring or early career tech director, this was designed to be for you. And we wanted to do the blended model where we had some in-person. But the key thing to me was the mentorship. Because when I was early in my career, I really struggled to find anybody who... Knew what I was trying to do, who also knew schools. Mm -hmm. And I ended up with an informal network. And um, Karen Douse and Connie White were my two mentors when I first started. And we were, we thought, the only women who were tech directing in an independent school anywhere. Yeah. Um, and I've since learned that there were more, but we were, we were hard to find in that networking, the who do you call when you don't want to put it on the listserv because you know, you're going to sound like you're whining or you really want a more nuanced conversation than you want a Q&A. Mm-hmm. So that was really important to me. And then what happened is the number of people who volunteered to mentor was overwhelming. I had to tell some of them, I'm sorry, could you do it next year? And, you know, and even thought about, could somebody have two mentors? And I was like, no, that's a terrible idea.
1: Um, but,
0: so that was <laughs> but you important. want to capture
1: like the lightning in a bottle when you have all those people who want to be a part of it. It's hard to say no.
0: Yeah. And people wanted to give back. And I got these heartfelt emails halfway through the year of, um, this has made me sign on for a couple more years, you know, from someone who said I was about to retire and instead I'm going to stay because I'm more interested in my profession now.
1: So, so my experience as, as part of the cohort was um, it was basically a year long cohort of working with incredible, incredible leaders around the country from independent schools. Um, and I met and um, developed relationships with people that I still, um, you know, when I see an email post to the, I said L from them, I open it up immediately because I just know Jack Hardcastle is going to have the right answer the second. He posts. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> I know those things. So I met and worked with all those people and then the program um basically the, the sort of anchor of the program was this week that we we spent together, just short of a week um, in Northern California um, at Stevenson, I believe it was, is the school, yes. is that right? Uh, and mm-hmm. it was a beautiful, in beautiful Beach. campus. And Pebble yeah. Beach, that's right. Uh, and there we were, there were, um, I don't know, maybe 15 of us. And we spent this sort of four day period just getting, I mean, every minute of it was was a direct tutorial on how to do this job. And I look around the room and if I think about it now, those are people that I'm definitely still in contact with. So there's there are when I when I left my previous job to to come uh, to take the CIO role, one of the charges I was given was, do you know anyone that you think could could fill this role and really fit? And the yeah. very first person that came to mind was somebody from my cohort, and the second and third people that were external candidates also came from my cohort. And then the person who ended up filling that role is one of the four people that I put through the cohort after me. So, so employees that worked in my department. Um, so I'm now on, I think our fourth person who's gone through, it's changed its, its name since then, um, but it's still a, a really invigorating and great experience. Um, so I've been a huge fan of it. And I, and I think I've said you know before that w- there's no way that I could have navigated the, the waters of becoming a technology director from my background if it weren't for a combination of the ICDL Atlas and then the relationships that I built as a a result of those things. One of the things that I think goes unsaid a lot is that at the beginning of this conversation, we identified that schools really wanted to to prioritize culture with their technology people. They wanted to make sure they had somebody aligned with mission. It's really challenging to find people that had a combination of those things. There's not a Sarah Hanawalt around every corner, but the program throughout oh, made it. <laughs> the, the The program made it so that schools could literally just talent seek. They could say, "We've got an English teacher who is a rock star and shows." a ton of potential as a leader and is interested in it and has a background in publishing or those things, we're going to enroll them in this program and give them a year to get the tools that they need. And then, and, and so it, it exploded the hiring pool for these jobs mm-hmm. and and meant that it was no longer about having a degree in networking that, that was first. And I, I mean, I, listen a degree in you know any of the it degrees are valuable obviously incredibly valuable but it just gave schools an opportunity to really look for the right person without putting that skill set so far ahead um, and so I think it, I think it changed the way that technology works in independent schools. I, I don't think it's an overstatement to say it's changed how technology is emerging outside independent schools. So it's an incredible contribution that you and those founders have made to the work that, that we're all doing now. So, I, I mean, I'm, I i do not want to spend all 30 minutes telling you how great it is, but I do want you to know that I think that it's, and for people who are listening that aren't familiar with any of these organizations, um, including the one we're going to talk about next, you should look for it. Uh, So your time at Atlas comes to an end and you move on to One Schoolhouse. Tell me about One Schoolhouse and what you do for them.
0: So One Schoolhouse is a really interesting um, organization. And it started with four girls schools who had students who wanted to take classes that they could not provide on campus. And so they were looking at online options and were really dismayed because they weren't up to the caliber of courses that they were teaching at their schools. And so these four schools got together and ponied up enough money to hire an online teacher who was a teacher at one of the schools who they could teach how to teach online. And they wanted to provide online courses that were at that standard. And it sort of exploded from there, right? It started as online school for girls. Now, you know, our head of school, Brad, likes to say, so I used to go to conferences and say, well, I'm the head of school of online school for girls, but we're not only for girls and we're not only online, you know, all of these things that we weren't. So now we're called One Schoolhouse and have been for a number of years. And we will have somewhere around 1500 student enrollments this year most students who take a class with us take one during their high school career. And, you know, the ability to learn online and in an intentionally online course. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to compare this at all to emergency remote learning, which is a totally different ballgame, but the ability to learn online is increasingly being seen as a competency. The students go to college and then our assistant head of school for teaching and learning is just an intellectual powerhouse and she has devised a and leads a program that is competency-based that provides students with real opportunities for agency and is completely different from what most people think of when they think of online learning. Most people think of something like what you and I are doing here in a call Mm -hmm. Um, and certainly our students do meet with their teachers in video conferencing but never is the whole class gathered together at once for a lecture.
1: Mm.
0: And so that's been, it's been really powerful and we've gotten some really um, gratifying feedback, I guess, from families who had children in one of our classes and in another situation who said, if more of the classes had been like this, we might've had a better year. But the truth yeah. is I don't wanna denigrate the schools that are doing that because we are just one of a student's experiences and we partner with the school Mm-hmm. So the school that has the student who's taking um, multivariable calculus, I'm going to start to get in over my head when I describe some <laughs> of our more advanced courses. But that's such an interesting concept because those students have been all along in their school, probably in classes with kids who are older than them as they mm-hmm. take math classes, and are quite likely more facile with some of the math and learning it very quickly. And so for the first time before they go to college, They are going to be in a cohort of students who are just as capable as they are, which is really good for them if they've been ahead for years and years. And they're going to have the opportunity to just enjoy being with other kids who love math, who eat, you know, these kinds of equations for lunch and want more. And that community for those students can actually make them feel more comfortable back in their own school because now they say, oh, I have a place where I fit in too. And my school helped me find this.
1: That's, yeah that's interesting I, and I wouldn't it's not an angle about it that I that I would have thought of even though I have a son who uh, who is a, as a learner is always sort of trying to seek a level and find his place it's interesting to think about it as, as that I, I knew that and one of the reasons that I wanted you to to come on the the podcast was because I knew that there were few people that would be better positioned to provide the sort of insights and analysis that that I am curious about when in the stages of, of where we are now, I, what I say is I had planned so much about these episodes to be talking about what school looks like post pandemic, what lessons <laughs> we learned from remote learning, the remote learning experiment, but then instead we're in, you know, pandemic 2.0 or whatever you want to call it. And and many places are going back into quarantine and students are back online learning again. And so it's sort of, I guess that it changes not the conversation, but the question, because instead of saying, well, what, you know, what worked, I guess the question is from, from your purview and where you sit, what are schools getting right? What have we figured out about this process for those of us who have been fumbling around in the dark and doing it for the first time? And it's not, you know, part of the core mission, but we're just trying to serve our students. What did we learn in that first year, year and a half that we're doing correctly? And are there any things that you think that, that schools should be trying to move away from as part of their Uh, as part of their remote learning practices that you've seen.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I don't think we have the amount of time that I could really wax out about this, but (laughs) I think it's leveraging the heck out of your LMS and figuring out how do we move seamlessly, whether we're on campus or off campus. And it's not breaking our teachers' backs by having them teach in a room and broadcast and really try to have a an eye on 16 different things at once, right? How long did we spend telling people not to multitask? And then we yeah. said, oh, but wait, there's a pandemic. And you know, you alluded to this, but post-pandemic is increasingly, I think, a futuristic term. And I think mm-hmm. really where we're headed is this next normal, which is what we're calling it at One Schoolhouse. Instead of, you know, I've heard people say new normal, but that implies, okay, we figured it out. This is what it's gonna right. be. And I think we're gonna just keep iterating our next normal. And so if we think about how can we set up structures so that learning takes place? And there was a conversation on the academic leaders list, which is smaller than ISED, but really an interesting place to be about. okay, so if families say we would like to spend a month at our vacation home and we would like to to have remote learning as an option for that month. You know, what are you going to say? And I don't have an opinion on that. That's not an issue for me. But it was an interesting conversation. And it is something to think about when if you can do something and you say you won't, do you have a really good reason and do you know why you won't? And and if you're centering yourself on your culture, great, Mm -hmm. right? So absolutely, it is important that every third grader who can be in the room is in the room and that's who we are going to be as a school. There that's absolutely valid. You live your mission in your mm-hmm. program. When you think about what are ways that you can meet the needs of someone who maybe isn't taking an extended vacation but who has oh my gosh we do all have to quarantine because we're going to be around an elderly relative who is not quite due for their booster shot yet. And so now how do you build into your structure a way to support that child in a way that still centers to the rest of your experience around the culture of your school and that's where i think your lms i mean i know that i'm sort of setting it up to be the holy grail but it really mm-hmm. can do that because you can have an option on the lms that the teacher has set up one of the things we do at one schoolhouse our teachers build the whole darn school year before school even opens and people say, "Oh my gosh, I need more flexibility than that." I have to be right. well. They can be, you know, they can respond to something if you are teaching, um, teaching a government class, and something happens, and they want to respond to that. There's a bill, or there's something interesting. Absolutely, teachers have the flexibility to do that. But the whole school year is posted on the learning management system, which means that it's an intentional choice and not a oh no, what am I going to do tomorrow? Mm-hmm. And it's, That supports the executive functioning of everybody involved in the course. Sure. And anytime we can make executive functioning seamless or frictionless, then we're benefiting everybody in the room. And then we can think creatively about that student who needs 10 days of support or the family that's got another kind of circumstance.
1: That's great. That's an interesting, yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it is, it's, it's true. It, it does support the way that that planning unfolds is to be supportive of some of the most important elements for students and executive function. I, I, I thought that it was interesting and maybe it was ambitious of me or trying to turn a, a negative into a positive, but I sort of thought that when we shifted to this remote learning model a year and a half ago, that it was going to in some ways expedite some of the change or that um, that you know, that Ted Dintersmith and people have talked about in re-envisioning schools. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was even a little bit um, rattled when people started just saying, we want to get back to normal because it was this euphemism for doing things exactly the way that we did before. Um, And I get that. I get that as a parent. I want my kids to go to school. I want them to have their friends. I want all those things that are normal parts of their daily lives. But I also thought if we rush too quickly back into it, we might lose the opportunity to see those things that we could cast off, that we recognize in this time of, you know, in this difficult time that are maybe not weren't as necessary a part of our culture, or our mission. Um, and then the the other thing that I was deeply concerned about was schools just diving headlong into sort of this like uh, pandemic industrial complex of purchasing and just spending yeah. millions of dollars that was just going to sit on, you know, on the sideline a year later. And, um, but I, it's, it's tough because we can't see around corners. And so, uh, but I think it's, it, we, we, as schools, independent schools, we do need to do a better job leveraging the experts in this field that we have. And, you know, one school is a perfect example of that. Hey, this is what we do. We could probably save you some of those headaches that you're, that you are you know, that you're heading into when you're first time at something like a, a remote learning. So I, I it's interesting because we're, you know, we do talk, we've talked in a lot of these episodes about education during the pandemic. And I mean, I think that that's to be expected given our circumstances, but we recently hear, um, broke the faculty in a professional development exercise um, into a SWOT exercise and did strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats um, specific to our school. Um, And the idea was that they would sit together in groups from across the different communities. So, you'd know you have someone from lower school, someone from middle school, someone from upper school, someone from the admin, and you would go through the SWOT analysis. And then when you were done with that, you would take those points and address the master plan, the building plan, and say... How closely aligned is our master plan for the future of this campus with what we think are our opportunities and our needs? Um, and it was a really it was fascinating to see one of the things, some of the things that that came up. But one of the areas that there wasn't a lot of um, conversation about was perceived threats in independent schools. And I thought, well, maybe I'm just paranoid. Maybe there aren't that many threats to the, our way of education in independent schools. What do you think are the um, sort of looming threats around the way that independent schools do business
0: okay so you said something else that I want to go back sure. to and then I'll talk about that because so one of the things that I hope is our pandemic um, one of the things that we see as a direction we want to go is the personalized learning piece right we have really privileged compliance and unity and we might I mean, there are schools with four different levels of English you know, for 10th graders to take depending on what track they're on and all of that. And this idea that maybe we don't need to do that. Maybe we can mm-hmm. use the technology and the deep expertise our teachers have, right? Independent school teachers are really so well established in their disciplines and in understanding right. their culture and understanding students when they personalize that experience for students, and that doesn't mean, oh, you like baseball, so you only have to read books about baseball, right? But it's (laughs) a, Joseph, here are your strengths and here are the areas that you need to grow. And here's what you need to be really competent at by the end of the year, and let's find the right path for you to get there. Um, There is starting to be, now I'm getting all, that's a really long answer to your question. There is starting to be a real movement in charters and some other online things. I've seen some really interesting schools pop up Mm -hmm. and there's an online school that is degree granting, which we at One Schoolhouse are not. We're supplemental. There's an online independent school that is part of the Mastery Transcript Consortium, and I'm going to forget their name, but if you look them up, they're part of that and they were established by some professors at Georgia Tech and their whole idea is that students study one thing at a time. They get really good at that. And then they move on to the next thing. And over the course of four years or three years, they finished a high school diploma, but we're not marching them through 45 minutes of this, 20 minutes of this and that sort of thing as they go. So I think that is super interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, We're also seeing the, and this is in the not-for-profit charter world. I know charters can be politically interesting and
1: uh,
0: tough to talk about, but in the not-for-profit charter world, we're seeing some partnerships between museums, and there's one here in where this my part of the country between Research Triangle Park and a museum, thinking about how will kids get ready for other kinds of careers, and they're looking at competency and mastery-based learning in the classroom. Super interesting stuff, and I think the kinds of parents we want to keep in independent schools... Sometimes mm-hmm. we're afraid to talk to parents about our pedagogy or educational philosophy. You know they come in, they ask to see the college list, and that's really not who we are, and it shouldn't be who we are. It should be that we have a philosophy that's really defining your child's classroom experience, and we can't wait to tell you all about it. All right. I think there's real opportunity there.
1: Focus. Yeah, focusing on on who we are. I, I think you're right. It's interesting. Those are things that I hadn't thought of, like micro credentialing. That sort of all of that sort of the emergence of those programs probably are. Um, they're attractive to the same to that same group of parents that are looking for independent schools. Um, which I think that the the through line in those things, um, and it might be a good good place for us to go out on is um, innovation, right? The, you know our parents, in independent schools are generally a pretty innovative lot um, because they've already thought outside of the box for their children's education. It's not like when I was 12 years old and you either went to the public school or you went to the Catholic school, the diocesan school in town. It's not like that anymore. The independent school choice is a thought out innovative choice. It's buying into something that. Has not existed in you know forever, and and is evolving. And generally, very specific personalities. The personality between you know St. Mark's School of Texas and um, you know Harvard Westlake very different. And so mm-hmm. you're, you're you're attracting parents who already have, even if they haven't announced it, have a respect for innovation. So, given that this is an area of expertise for you, what do you think the best path? for independent schools who right now are saying, you know what, we're wanting a little bit on the innovation side. We need to really kickstart ourselves out of sort of settling into you know, a malaise of this is our identity and this is who we are. What do you think are really good starting points to sort of start that conversation about innovation?
0: So I think you wanna look at what are our really valuable resources that we have right here on campus and in our community that we're not taking advantage of. I did an interview not too long ago on my um, weekly webinar with two history teachers who teach a place-based U.S. history course and they're in Detroit and it's not that kids don't learn anything that didn't happen in Detroit but they start right here. How was Detroit in Influenced by American history, and how did Detroit play a role? And they they look at all of that, and then I think too about the incredible uh, resources that we have on campus and our faculty. And you know, one of the things that we do is advanced independent curriculum, and that is not necessarily a drop a standardized approach, although that's one approach that schools take. But it starts looking at what's the expertise our faculty have, and how could they inspire a real joy in learning with students in their field without teaching to a standardized test all year. And I think independent school teachers who teach uh, standardized courses are still much more capable. They're not teaching to the test all year. right? So I don't want anybody to feel put down by that. But what could you do if you really said, you know what, we've got a retired judge who's teaching here, as one school I know does, who's teaching American government here. Why on earth are we teaching to attest test when we've got somebody who can tell their career, their life story, and the cases mm-hmm. they've sat in on, and and in an appropriate way, maybe make some kids think about how do I want to be involved in this government starting right now, not just in six years when I finish school.
1: It's so interesting you say that we just started a program that is community-based courses, and so there's no there's no teacher per se, um, but they're you know. Enrollees in the course—they're enrolled in the course—and it's not you're not required to be a student, just a member of our community. So we have adults in the in the community that are part of this course, and we have students who are also in the upper school who are part of the course, and they meet in the mornings. Um, and they're exactly what you're describing. One of the recent ones that they did was just a broadcasting one, and we brought people in from outside. We brought uh, ESPN sportscaster in um, to be part of the class, and other people with broadcasting experience. And it's incredible to see the charged conversations that people have, which is not to say that they don't have them after they leave APUS history, because they do. Um, right. But but it's such an interesting, you know, it's it's just such an interesting wealth of knowledge that's available that we might not have mined in the past because of the view of a, like a traditional structure of the class or traditional role of the teacher or any of those things. The fact that we were willing to sort of blow the doors off of that and say, we're going to have this, you know, community based and we're going to have adults that are students and, you know, student age students and, and bring outside sources in and we're going to meet during the non-scheduled day so that it doesn't take away from one of your scheduled courses. Um, there was this sort of liberating feeling about it, but the conversations that came out of it are incredibly excited and charged. And you could just see people's brains really grinding up the information, just thinking this wasn't something you'd ever, you know, it's, I, I don't, it's almost, I say it was education by inception because the students wow. that are in there don't feel like they're, you know, they don't feel like they're being taught to, they feel mm-hmm. like they're in a conversation with Experts from a field. It's remarkable to see, and it's in its very early stages. I'll be interested to see how it uh, how it moves on from here. Before I let you go, I do want to mention that one schoolhouse does something that's really, really invaluable. You do a weekly um, check-in. Can you talk a little bit about that and how somebody could sign up for it?
0: Yeah. So we call them webinars, but they're almost, in a way, a little uh, broadcast and just what's new this week. And it's evolved. It started with um, the the pandemic when it was first emerging, like what did we know about online learning that we could share? And now it's evolved into kind of a thematic. In August, we talked about problem solving. And in September, we're talking about parent school relationships. And so over the course of four weeks, I'll have four different guests. And we usually have somebody who's really thinking from a high level, you know, big picture, and then we'll have someone who's maybe more nitty gritty and someone who's got an exemplar of a program that's really insightful. And the last one is um, I usually do with my colleague, Liz Cates, who is brilliant. And she calls it, let me Google that for you, but it's really not that she's (laughs) a researcher and she Mm -hmm. loves keeping up. And so she just comes on and shares, here's what I've learned this month. Last time it was about, um, I'll ask you this. Did you know that every time you make a decision, you are actually using up glucose in your brain and that is why if you have a really hard driving day where you're having to think a lot, and make a lot of decisions, you are physically depleted. So that whole Snickers bar humor, you know, you're not you <laughs> and you're angry, it's actually true. Wow. It's science-based. No, I didn't and so know she came on and talked about that. It was really interesting. So the
1: dis- decision fatigue is a real thing. I mean, physiologically, that's a real thing Then these yeah, people are making mom... decisions every day.
0: Yeah. And yeah. your mom said sleep <laughs> right. on it, she was right. right.
1: She was right. It,
0: you'll know better in the morning.
1: So how can someone sign up for these?
0: So that's on our website. We've got uh, One Schoolhouse. If you go to our professional development, you've got, we've got a page called webinars and right at top is the link where you can sign up. And right now we've got them all embedded. We have a YouTube channel too. Um, we need to do some work because when we created this page, we didn't know we were going to do keep doing this for over a year. Oh, ah, okay, and yeah. so, um there's a lot of them on there, but right at top is the link. You don't have to wait for the page to load. And we would love to have you. They're always free. They're always recorded.
1: They're um, just another, I mean, it's just another example of, you know, you've, you've made a career out of providing resources and support for people in these communities. It's, re, it's remarkable. And I know that I, I speak for hundreds of them by saying thank you. So, and yet again, you're, you're giving you. again by coming and joining me on this nascent podcast. I appreciate your time. It's um, I, I just always love hearing about the work that you're doing, and I think that uh, it's inspirational. And you're a great, great leader and for the community. So thank you so much for your time, and um, I will uh, I will look forward to when we get the opportunity to see one another in person again.
0: That sounds like a plan. Thank you so much, Joseph. It's really a delight to be here, and I I love seeing you in this role and talking about this because that is um, That is the the point I think of my career is helping other people accomplish things they didn't know they could do.
1: Well then mission accomplished, Sarah. Great. Thanks. Thank you. (laughs) That does it for this week's episode of The Meadow. I'd like to thank my guest, Sarah Hannawald. I would encourage you to find out more about the work Sarah's done by looking up Atlas Organization online or the ISED listserv especially One Schoolhouse. While you're at it, take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. We'll see you next time at The Meadow.